Soon, however, corruption, lust, and greed were made known, perpetuated primarily by this Hindu teacher. And slowly but surely, people left, did not follow him anymore, and he went back to India. Now, most of us have probably never heard about that. Most of us probably don't know that story about that compound in Oregon, and oddly enough, today, it hosts a Christian youth camp. The story most of us are familiar with, though, took place in Waco, Texas. This time, it involved a man by the name of David Koresh, and once again, a compound was built, and followers came, and then eventually, you had greed and lust and corruption, as this so-called leader became physically intimate, not only with other men's wives, but their children. And when this was made known, eventually most of the group left. And for those of us who were alive at the time, we perhaps remember the images that were on the news of the government raiding the compound and a fire starting which killed a number of little children. Now, there are many number and smaller, lesser-known stories that repeat that exact same pattern. Somebody comes along, perhaps has a, a very dynamic personality, or is very good, uh, a dynamic teacher, and there's this kind of rise of followers, and then corruption, lust, and greed, and people will follow no more. Today, though, I want to talk about following Jesus. Now, most of us heard this story for the first time, the parable of the sower, likely in Sunday school. And perhaps there was a picture to color, or perhaps somebody used uh, some, some flannel graph to help us picture Jesus in a boat pe- teaching and preaching to a very large crowd. But as we've worked our way through Matthew, one of the things that's very clear is that there are a number of different motivations as to why those people are there. We know that some were there simply because of curiosity. The old adage of a crowd draws a crowd. We know some of them were there because they simply wanted to be healed by diseases. Some of them wanted to be fed. Some of them enjoyed controversy. They wanted to see Jesus and the religious leaders go at it again. But what is very clear that Matthew has laid out for us is this crowd is not here because they believe. What we have is a large group of people who need to be saved, but instead of standing up and declaring that he's the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus uses this opportunity, this large crowd, to actually teach his disciples. He speaks to the crowd, and we see that he's addressing the crowd, but clearly the lesson is for the disciples. It is a lesson for following him. For those who do believe. What does it mean then to be a follower of Jesus? That's the question I want to answer this morning. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I have three points for you. Number one, following Jesus means he is our primary relationship. Following Jesus means he is our primary relationship. Look with me at verses 46 through 50. Now we have to get a bit of a running start here. Jesus has made his way to this area in order to teach in a local synagogue. While teaching there and healing the man with the withered hand, he has his confrontation with the religious leaders. After that, he leaves and goes to someone's home. There he casts out a man who was possessed, or cast out a demon from a man who was possessed. And once again, he has a confrontation with the religious leaders. 
And after those two confrontations, in fact, three over the course of the chapter, he begins to warn the crowd about unbelief. Now, the text says that while he was warning them, he receives a message that his brothers and his mother are on the outside asking to speak with him. Now, what Matthew's doing, from a literary point of view, what Matthew's doing is beginning to pivot from the idea of unbelievers to what it means to follow Jesus. The religious leaders were not going to follow Jesus. They were not going to do the will of the Father. So Matthew, from a literary sense, is, is trying to evoke the question, what about the crowd? Would they? Now, again, Matthew tells us Mary and Jesus' brothers were outside, which tells us, for one reason or another, Mary has not been traveling with Jesus. And as it concerns his brothers, the Bible also tells us that before Jesus' death and resurrection, they did not believe. In contrast, Jesus is going to point to his disciples and say, here is my mother and my brothers. Now, when he says that, Jesus is not trying to be dismissive. He's not trying to be mean. He's, not, he, he's trying to say that there is something more important than even family. Or if I could say it this way, he's, he's trying to, to communicate to us that family is an earthly thing. And while he's teaching the crowd, he is doing kingdom things. Now, we don't think about this uh, as much, but, but family, to a Jew in that time was everything. All right, who you, who your mom was, who your dad was, what kind of scandals that perhaps even happened generations ago, all of those things would determine your social and economic uh, status. Who you were related to would be determining what, how far you would make it up in society. It would determine who was willing to be your friend. And so when Jesus says, this is my mother and these are my brothers, he's, he's tapping into that reality that there is something greater than the social economic advantages of being born in the right family. That there, are greater, there is a greater connection that people can have, and that is a connection to God through Jesus. As Jesus will say in another place, you seek the kingdom first, everything else falls into place. And seeking the kingdom first starts with a relationship with Jesus by grace through faith in him. Now, I want to understand, I want you to understand what I mean by relationship. There are a lot of people who like to talk about uh, how, Jesus, how Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And, and that statement is really mostly correct. But a lot of times when I hear it, I don't know about you, when I hear it, I hear somebody trying to dismiss the need to be faithful. Well, I don't need to be in church. I have a relationship, not a religion. Or they're trying to dismiss the idea of being holy. I can do that because I have a relationship, not a religion. But the Bible describes our relationship with God. The Bible describes our relationship with Christ entirely with familial terms. God as our father, God as a husband, Jesus as a brother. It is described as a family. 
And think about all the ways the Bible describes how that family works. For example, in Ephesians, the Bible tells us that we are Jesus' siblings who are all enjoying the wealth of the Father. Now, my mom never carried cash. And if, if, if it was a lucky day, my dad might have $2 in his wallet. The thing is, though, you had to be the first kid to get to dad to get that money. There was no sharing of wealth among the siblings. Jesus is described in Hebrews as an older brother who sympathizes with our weaknesses. I remember a period of time where I just did not want to do my schoolwork, was not doing my homework, and it was starting to cause a problem at school. And my mom tried everything. She tried the carrot. She tried the reward system. She tried the the rod system. I just would not do my work. And so exasperated, she asked my older brother, can you talk to him? And he sat down with me, and he was in college at the time, and so he could sympathize with not wanting to do his schoolwork. But then he reminded me how important it really is. What perhaps makes us the most uncomfortable is that it is very clear in in these verses that Jesus' expectation is that our relationship with him will be the relationship at the center of our life. That our relationship with him is greater than the one we have with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, with our friends. And that sounds immediately what? Radical. Cultish. Because we deeply love our parents and we deeply love our spouses and our children and our siblings. But it shouldn't make us uncomfortable at all because it's clearly the greater relationship. He is the spouse that never dies and never divorces. He is the parent that never leaves, the parent that never fails. He is not the brother who beats on you, but instead dies for you. It is a relationship that is superior in every single way. And Jesus is saying it should be treated as such. And it is treated as such when we do the will of the Father, loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, showing forgiveness and mercy with whom we share a local church, encouraging the faith of our loved ones and going through trials. That's what it looks like when he is our primary relationship. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. But that brings us to number two. Following Jesus means hearing and believing Following Jesus means hearing and believing, verses 1 through through 3, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. The Bible tells us the crowd has gotten so large that Jesus has to get in a boat in order to teach everyone. In fact, Matthew uses a word, he calls it a great crowd has gathered. So we've moved from the synagogue, we've then gone to somebody's house, and now the crowd's gotten so big that they have to be on the beach and Jesus has to be on a boat. This is a very large crowd in a very small town. Imagine if suddenly thousands upon thousands of people descended upon the village of Maxwell. Now, one of the things we could assume is that some of those people don't live here. They've traveled for some reason. And as I pointed out earlier... These people have a number of different reasons as to why they're there. Now, this great crowd brought an opportunity, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus was a salesman, 
With this kind of crowd, this would be the perfect time to pitch the product. If he was going to be a revolutionary, this was the perfect time to get the troops rallied and go and try to take Jerusalem. At least that's what the disciples saw. They saw this as a prime opportunity for Jesus to get in front of a very large crowd and say, I am the son of David. You've heard rumors. I am the Messiah. But what does Matthew tell us in verse 3? Jesus speaks to them in parables. Now, many Christians struggle with what to do with parables. I'll let you know that for thousands of years, theologians have struggled with what to do with parables. They're not always straightforward, and they're not simple moral teachings. They're not always just rules to follow. For example, Jesus tells a story about a thief. And he, and he actually says, I wish my people were more like the cunning thief. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to be thieves. He was trying to teach them about how to be cunning in sharing the gospel of the kingdom. So the parables aren't always be like this person or don't be like that person or do this or don't do that. But what we can tell you is that a parable was a way of teaching that clearly required and was done so that the student had to work to get the meaning. They only reveal their meaning when you do the work, when you study them, when you hear them, and you mull them over in your head. You have to really be listening to understand. So, if you're in that crowd, and the only reason, the motivation to be there is to be healed, you're not really listening. If you're only there because of controversy, you want to see Jesus and the religious leaders go at it again, you're probably not listening. And this is what Jesus is going to mean by good and bad soil. Now go down to verse 9. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. The statement is the equivalent of saying, I hope you understand. I hope you hear and believe. I pray that God would give the meaning of this parable to you. Now if you look at the parable of the sower, you you see a, a very clear pattern. You have a seed that goes in the soil. It grows and produces fruit. The end of this story, the story, the, the goal to go after is the bearing of fruit, the, the bringing forth of life. Now, in my time in ministry, I have heard all sorts of reasons, and I have seen all sorts of reasons for why people will sit in church. I know a guy, I can see him clearly in my head, who clearly only went to church because it was good for business. Connections, networking. I know men who came to church because it was good for politics, because they were trying to run for local office. I know, of course, people come to church because they had a bad week. People come to church because they've had a terrible loss. I know people who have come to church just to cause trouble. People who come to church because they want rules to follow, to organize their life. And just like the crowd on that day, you can have a church like we have this morning with 100 people and 99 different reasons for why they're here. But no matter what the reason is, when the Bible is open, the scriptures are being read or spoken, the task before us is always to hear and believe. If we are going to be followers of Jesus, whether we're we're doing our devotions or our daily reading, whether it's a verse or a chapter, as a follower of Jesus, the primary thing, the primary calling is to hear and believe. When I sit in my office and I prepare one or two or three messages every week, the first task for me is the primary task of hearing and believing. 
I remember growing up, I always wondered, it's like every church function, somebody had to get up and read the Bible, talk about the Bible, share the Bible. And I think, why are we doing this? It was supposed to be donuts and coffee. Why is this guy going on and on and on from the book of Hebrews? But now I understand. Because the main duty of a Christian is to hear and believe. And how shall we hear if it's never spoken? Now, the call to hear and believe is the contrast to the reality of superficial discipleship. And if we're honest, which I hope we are, all of us have had our own experiences with such a thing as superficial discipleship. All of us probably could recite stories, at least that we've heard of, maybe even seen on, uh, on our, uh, seen with our own eyes. Stories like men who came to church in their Sunday best became and went home and, and committed horrible sins of abuse. We know of women who have used the church as a, as a social circle, or perhaps even some I've seen who have used the music department as an opportunity to audition for America's Got Talent every week. Those who truly follow Jesus will sin, but when they see the scriptures and it says something to them like, do not lie, they're going to be convicted and they're going to repent. When Jesus says to love the poor, they're going to be convicted. If they truly, Jesus says to, to take care of those with whom you share a local church, we're going to be convicted. When it says do not tear down your brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to be convicted. And why are we convicted? Not because we're good people. Because Jesus throws seed into the good soil and we hear and we believe and that has to happen if we're going to follow Jesus. And that brings us to number three. Following Jesus means needing the Holy Spirit's help. Look with me at verse 10. The disciples came and asked, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, I want you to understand this is a question that's not a question. Do you understand what a question is when it's not a question? I'll give you an example. Every husband in this room has been asked a question that's not a question. When your wife says, you're not going to dinner in jeans, are you? That's a question that's not a question. She's telling you to change your pants. Anybody who's, got, who's been a parent has done this. You're not going to go play outside before you finish your homework, are you? It's not really a question. What this is is really a statement of bewilderness. Why would Jesus not seize upon the opportunity to talk to such a large crowd? Why doesn't he just plainly say who he is? You see, the disciples clearly see the sign of the, the crowd as a sign of affirmation. There are so many people here, their assumption is that they're ready. They're on Jesus' side. For them, the, the crowd was a sign that Jesus was popular. I mean, even today we struggle with seeing large crowds in churches at conferences and thinking the same thing. Oh, look how great things are. But then Jesus gets up and he speaks to them in parables. And the disciples are going, well, why would you do that? You see, the disciples were seeing, seeing things with earthly eyes. They saw this great crowd. They saw this great chance. And we know from other texts that the disciples didn't really care for small groups. They didn't really care for even children. They always seemed to be looking at the situation through natural eyes. And so in verse 11, Jesus says to them, it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom in heaven, but to them it has not been given. And I want you to just see that word, given. 
The disciples did not come to their belief in Christ through some intellectual capacity. Their belief in Christ was not payment for having done all good things. Their ability to hear and believe came from somewhere outside of them. They had to be acted upon by an outside force. They had to get something they could not obtain for themselves. It had to be something supernatural. It had to be the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we want to be honest, and again, I hope we are, the reality is if it was not for the grace of God, you and I would only see things through earthly eyes. Only big crowds on Sunday morning would be able to affirm that we are a good church. Only being popular would tell us that we have value. The fact is, though, we have this problem every single day we wake up. You get to a certain age, and I'm not saying I'm there yet, but you get to a certain age, and when you wake up, things hurt. And they take your attention. You don't have to get too far into your day before plans begin to change. Get your mail, and suddenly expenses appear. And we get hit with a tidal wave of earthly matters and problems, and it's all we see. We can also give stories about the grace of God through the power of the Spirit, somehow, maybe in our devotions, maybe through a word from a friend, maybe going to Bible study. The power of the Holy Spirit broke through our earthly attention and gave us the ability to hear and believe. Now, this is a text, again, that could bother us a little bit because clearly the sense here is the only way to hear and believe is through supernatural intercession. The clear message of the text is that it is impossible to hear and believe without supernatural intercession. Now, for me, what that does is really, it informs how I pray for those family members who are not saved, those friends that are not saved, that I care about. And when I get to my prayer time, I don't just pray, God, would you save them? I say, say God, will you give them the ears to hear? I ask God, would you give them the faith to believe? We have to ask God for the supernatural. Because the Bible is very clear that in their natural state, people are antagonistic and rejecting of God. And we have to also understand that even after we're saved, that, antagoni that, that antagonistic and rejection of God still resides in our heart. It's not the main motivation anymore, but it's still there. And so when I come here and I go from pew to pew and I pray for those who normally sit there, that's the, that's the benefit of the fact that you all just sit in the same t places every time. As I work my way down those pews and I begin to pray for people in this church because I know they're going to sit there. I say, Lord, without your help, they will not believe. Lord, many in this church believe, Lord, but many of us struggle with unbelief. What we need is not the best sermon and not the greatest music. It is not the best pastor. What this church needs is the supernatural. We can only follow with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so what we learn from Jesus and the lessons for his followers is that following Jesus is not something we should be interested in. It is something we have to be committed to. 
Following Jesus is something supernatural, not something that could be or should be done by earthly strength using earthly eyes, but by the power of the indwelling spirit. To follow Jesus, one has to hear and believe what he has said and done. And so when we open the scriptures, no matter the occasion, the primary thing to do in that moment is to hear and to believe. And when we do that, the next task before us is to treat Jesus as the highest relationship we have. Now, that doesn't mean severing human relationships or devaluing human relationships. In fact, the Bible tells us that if Christ, if we treat Christ as our primary relationship of life, all other relationships become richer than if we loved Jesus second. So following Jesus means he's our primary relationships. It means we're called to discard any super, uh, superficial discipleship. And that is what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment. To follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this text and the call it has on us to follow. The reminders of what it means to follow you and Lord, as we continue in this text, by your grace next week, we will see more about what it means to follow you. But today, Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be the primary relationship in our life. Lord, I pray that when we open our Bibles in our morning devotions or we go to a Bible study or we come to church, I pray that we would be the kind of people who hear and believe. But Lord, that is an impossible, impossible task. Is it impossible, Lord, to do what you've called us to do and things like loving the poor and and caring for those with whom we share a local church. We cannot do these things without the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, your movement among us as we do every single week. I pray you would help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.